Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me, an evangelical in my early 20s, on a journey into the history of Christianity. I dug deeply into the history of the biblical canon, the history of the Reformation, why some people worshipped one way and other people worshipped another way. It was then, as I looked into the history of my faith, that I bumped into the ancient Catholic Church. It was inevitable in a study of church history, and there it was, looming large. It was then, as I began to read from actual Catholic sources about actual Catholic theology, that I realized that what I thought Catholics believed, what I thought I knew about the Catholic Church, was based in large part on misinformation and simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that same gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I'm pleased to welcome back Dr. Doug Beaumont onto the show to talk about a Catholic response to evangelical deconversions. Dr. Beaumont is an evangelical convert like me, and we talked way back when about his evidence-based approach to understanding paradigm shifts. That is, how exactly someone goes from being an evangelical to becoming Catholic. When I heard about a recent spate of evangelical deconversions, prominent evangelicals leaving the faith altogether, I saw so many parallels to my own conversion out of evangelicalism and into the Catholic Church. As it turns out, Doug saw parallels too, and had already been writing articles and making videos in response. I had to have him on the show. And I want to say two things quickly. First, Doug and I are both converts and owe a great debt to our evangelical heritage. I've tried to be clear in this conversation that there are lots of different reasons evangelicals leave the faith. I don't mean to simplify that at all, but instead offer what I think are some compelling responses to some of the more common reasons that evangelicals deconvert. On one point, I want to clarify, too. I say in this conversation that perhaps some evangelicals may have an incomplete or a paltry view of who God is. I know I did. But that's not to say that Catholics aren't in the same boat too. The trope of God as a vindictive grouch who won't hesitate to cast you into the pits of hell if you don't follow all of his rules is a trope I'm pretty sure that Catholics made up. But that said, there is a stark difference. As a Catholic, my view of God is coherently presented in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a compendium of all Catholic beliefs, whether I know it or not. As an evangelical, no such thing exists. My view of God as an evangelical is based in part on the teaching of my pastor, on theologians that I read, and can easily vary from denomination to denomination, sometimes from church to church. The difference is quite stark, and I hope clear to see. Certainly, many Catholics leave the faith, sometimes for evangelicalism, 
because their view of God isn't big enough to meet all the challenges that they may encounter. But whether they know it or not, the Catholic Church does present a coherent, consistent claim of who God is that isn't possible to find across all the different iterations of Protestant Christianity. Second, I want to underscore something that Doug says somewhere in the middle of this conversation. He brings up young earth creationism as one of the objections that, in fact, lots of evangelicals have as part of their deconversion story. Doug says something profound, that beliefs like this, young earth creationism, are in fact in the minority, both historically and even presently amongst wider Christians in the wider Christian world. They are minority beliefs, and it follows evangelical doesn't need to leave the faith because of an opinion they can't reconcile, an opinion that's held by only a slim majority. For me, this came to the fore when I heard a Dutch Catholic priest talking about the rapture. In fact, he had no idea what the rapture was, and I was incredulous. As an evangelical growing up in the early 2000s, I was first in line every time a new book in the Left Behind series came out. I couldn't believe this priest, with several degrees in philosophy and theology, who was a pioneer in new media and podcasting, who was good friends with one of the writers of The Simpsons, for goodness sake, hadn't heard of the rapture. But I realized then that the idea of the end times, this sudden whisking away of saved Christians, sometime before, during, or after the so-called tribulation, was and truly is a phenomenon of a certain brand of evangelical Christianity. American Evangelical Christianity. I say this to underscore, once again, the need for a Catholic response to some of these evangelical deconversion stories. Because, like the idea that the world is only several thousand years old, these views aren't necessarily widely held. And if they're causing you to question your entire Christian worldview, well, there is another way. This is, I think, a great conversation, and I hope a coherent and compelling response to at least some of the reasons why evangelicals might leave the Christian faith. Without any further ado, please listen and enjoy. Hi, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. I'm thrilled to welcome back this week's guest. He's a returning guest and one of the most popular guests to appear on this show. One of my favorites, in fact, to have Dr. Douglas Beaumont. Dr. Beaumont has an MA in apologetics from Southern Evangelical Seminary. He has a PhD in theology from Northwest University, and he's the author of a number of of fine books, including some forthcoming books, which I'm excited to uh, finally get my hands on in the near future. Uh, but one of my favorite published books, Evangelical Exodus, Evangelical Seminarians and Their Paths to Rome, one of my favorite books of conversion stories. Dr. Beaumont is the editor and a contributor to that fine volume. Dr. Beaumont, welcome back to the show. Thank you for being here again, and hello. Great to be back. <laughs> well, look, I, I want to say off the top before we begin this uh, fantastic discussion on, on the Catholic response to evangelical deconversions. 
I want to say that I'm so glad to have you on this topic because we talked you and I way back when, um, very early on in, in the, the course of this show, on the conversion process. We were both evangelicals, we both became Catholic, and you've unpacked that in your story and in some subsequent work you've done. And uh, I, I love that discussion. And as we were having that discussion, I, I can't, I couldn't help but think uh, of other experiences that I've had talking to people who were on a similar journey that I was on, um, looking at some questions around understanding scripture and how we can all, as evangelicals, come to different conclusions. And that seemed problematic to me and to others I've talked to on the journey. But what I noticed, and I'll get into this a bit more as we have our discussion, is that there were so many similarities between my experiences uh, becoming Catholic and the questions that I was asking as I became Catholic and the experiences of people that I was speaking to who were losing faith entirely. And when I hear these conversations, when I hear these discussions of evangelicals leaving the faith, you know, quitting Christianity, uh, becoming, you know, overwhelmed with different interpretations of Scripture and different problems with interpretation and all kinds of things, and deciding to call it quits on Christianity— I think of you because I think there's so much in not that you not that you've quit the faith. <laughs> but because I think that you have oh yeah, see you later. I think you have a lot to say about this. And as it turns out, you have said a lot of things about this. So I'm excited to dig into this with you. Because one thing you do so well, Doug, is you straddle the kind of fence between how a Protestant approaches a lot of these questions and how a Catholic approaches these questions. And you've been in both those places, as I have, and you articulate those things so well. And so here we are to to have you help us to kind of unpack this journey. So thanks. (laughs) Thanks for being here. Yeah, well, gosh, after an introduction like that, I can't wait to hear what I have to say. (laughs) (laughs) Well, me neither. Okay. (laughs) I want to begin by talking about the process of deconversion. As I said, we spoke a lot about this uh, episode four or five, I think, way back in the uh, beginning of this podcast. And you know, the mechanics of how someone has a shift like this in their worldview, going from, as you and I were, evangelicals to Catholics, or as evangelical to maybe agnostic or, or atheist, I suspect it's a fairly similar process. And I say that in part because I'm thinking of this one person I was talking to, um, in particular, who had a very similar journey to mine. It began, as I said, in this way of asking questions about the Bible, why so many Christians interpret it one way and others a different way, problems of a literal interpretation. And for a long while, this, this friend that I was speaking with, this person that I was uh, corresponding with, we had a very similar journey up to a point, almost at the very end, where we then diverged drastically, and he became something of an agnostic, kind of decided that none of this really made sense. Well, I became Catholic, and we came to kind of polar opposite conclusions, but they were conclusions based on very similar questions. So with that in mind, I'm wondering, Doug, if we can walk through the process of deconversion, and maybe I'm wrong altogether, but I suspect there are some similarities to the kind of conversions that you and I had. You know, when I was writing Evangelical Exodus with a bunch of my buddies, there there was an intro part that I was working on, and a lot of them disagreed with this part, so I think I moved it into my section. Um, but I knew that several of us, as we were coming into the church, had come to the point where we said, you know what, for me at this point, it's it's Catholicism or atheism. I mean, really, like, that's kind of it, because with the number of problems that we saw with evangelicalism that really struck at like the root of our Christian faith. If I didn't find another way to uh, justify those things, then I was out, you know, and, and I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to like slowly downshift from Christianity down to, you know, no, I'm going all the way, baby. You know, like <laughs> if I, if I'm not going to be a Christian, I'm just going full atheist, you know, I might as well just, you know, enjoy the ride. Right. Um, but I think you're right that, that like what I noticed with some of these famous deconversions is I, I do kind of find myself nodding along with them going, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. That's a problem. And then like you said too, you know, that you follow them up to a point and then you realize, ah, okay, well, here's where I went one way, you went the other way. Um, but, you know, the process of conversion or deconversion, I mean, it's it's really just relative, you know, to where you're standing at that point. Um, but, you know, we, we did talk, I think, on a previous show about like the, you know, I, I think I break it down into like four stages with, you know, certain things that cause each each move. Yeah, finishing with a complete paradigm shift where you you've completely given up one view and embraced another one. So, I mean, we, we could go through those uh, pieces. Um, yeah. So, I mean, basically what, what happens as we talked about, I mean, just to describe it briefly, maybe is just this idea that it's not just one thing that you encounter that suddenly makes you become uh, a Catholic in our case, or uh, leave the faith in the case of people who are on, on that part of the journey. I'm thinking of, of the conversation that I had. We began by looking at issues of scripture, of interpretation of scripture, of, of how so many different denominations were looking at scripture and coming to different conclusions. That kind of began the questions we were asking. And it, it, it moved from there, very similar kind of trajectories for uh, this person I was talking to and myself. You know, the next stage was, well, there must be some kind of interpretation, some kind of interpreter. And, you know, well, well it seems like there isn't one. Well, maybe maybe it's, everything's literal. Is everything just literal? And then, well, no, it can't be because of this. But, I mean, the idea is it's not just one thing that makes you deconvert or convert. There, There is a process that happens kind of uh, uh, step by step, right? Yeah, like in the way I go through it with with my interpretation of of Thomas Kuhn's paradigm shift, um, is that usually what what kind of knocks you out of your current what they call stasis, like okay, I'm happy right now as a evangelical or right now as a Catholic, is that you start to notice certain aberrations that come along that ah, that doesn't really quite fit with what I believe. Um, and you know, you really only have a couple choices here. You you can try to accommodate those things. Um, or, or you have to alter something. And, and this is where people maybe start to drift away a little bit. That um, I really don't know how to account for the church's teaching on whatever. Um, so I've got to alter something or else those are going to really bother me. Um, and if those add up to the point where you realize I, I can't account for these things in my current worldview or paradigm or faith, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, eventually you're not going to be able to live with that any longer. You know, the double-mindedness is, is going to drive you crazy. You got to, you've got to get resolution to these to these anomalies and these. Uh, if these alterations don't suffice, like if if I can't tweak my worldview to accommodate those things, well, then eventually I got to find another one. I got, I got to find some other way to explain everything that I already have explained in my current view, but also explain these other things that don't fit. And to the degree that we that we find that you know where we can actually replace our previous view, that's when the the shift occurs, um, and when we find ourselves you know kind of firmly planted in the new view, then we're kind of back to stasis again. Where okay, now I've got everything accounted for, and I'm here. But this can be a, a very long process. It's not it's not one directional. It can go back and forth. Um, and, uh, you know, and it can be completely reversed. Um, you could find yourself in the new paradigm and then start finding aberrations in it that you suddenly realize, oh, the old paradigm actually worked better for this. And 
I think that to the degree that these aberrations bother a person, to that degree, they're going to be influenced to have a conversion experience. Yeah, whether it's a conversion to, say, Catholicism, to something else in the Christian sphere, or or a kind of deconversion, right? And here's where I think we have a fantastic Catholic answer, which I want to get to eventually in this conversation, is how we respond to some of those deconversions. Because for me, for me in my journey, um, and journeys that I've been a part of, these people I'm thinking of who've written to me, who've, who've been on these similar journeys, and who have, who have gone a different direction— I feel like, hey, wait a minute, but but here's another option over here. Here's the Catholic answer, the Catholic solution to that challenge you have. And so many times, this is why I wanted to have you on the program, Doug, is because so many times in these conversations, and we'll get to some examples later on here in the conversation, but in these in these discussions of these challenges that evangelicals meet and just can't seem to be overcome and leads to a deconversion out of evangelical Christianity into agnosticism or atheism, there is this cogent beautiful, uh, very uh, well-defined and well-reasoned Catholic answer to these uh, these deconversions, which I want to get to <laughs> eventually. Yeah, I think that, you know, for, for me, uh, just to tell my story a little bit, like two of the biggest problems that I saw was um, justifying the canon of the Bible, you know, that we have this religious resource that supposedly is the answer to everything. Um, but my my worldview, my evangelical worldview, couldn't account really for its existence because the books that were in the Bible were decided by the church, and and it was this church that we were kind of told not to trust. So that discrepancy was was difficult. And then even if you figured out what books belonged in the Bible, of course, then you have all these different people interpreting differently. And <clears throat> as I looked at the different groups, it was like, well, you know, we sort of we put all these groups over here, like they're outside, they're not Christian, the Mormon, Jehovah's Witness, those guys are way, way out. Um, their interpretations are too far. But then you have all these guys over here, Lutherans, Anglicans, Charismatics, whatever. Um, they're okay. you know. But really, what as a Protestant, you're just like, there's like a hundred different issues that we all disagree on, and somebody has to decide who gets to stay Christian and, and who isn't anymore. But that's not spelled out in Scripture. These so-called essentials of the faith are not marked out in Scripture in any way. And, you know, my mentor, Norman Geisler, I mean, he probably wrote more about that idea of identifying the essentials and figuring out what they were more than anybody. I mean, really, the project was a total failure. I mean, he every time he wrote another version of that article, he changed what the essentials were. I mean, it, you know, it's just it was just hilariously bad if, if you— went back through and did the research. It just doesn't work. Um, so, you know, between those two things, I, I just was, that was where my crisis came in is, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a way to justify the canon or orthodoxy with an evangelicalism. So what's the point? <laughs> I think the interesting thing, and, and certainly on the very first one there, the canon for me was a big deal becoming Catholic for me. Uh, the question was posed to me by a Protestant pastor. What's more important, you know, tradition or the Bible? Kind of which which leads which? And of course, if you look into the history of the canon, well, it had to be put together by somebody. So there's a role for tradition to be played in there. And that really began to poke holes in my worldview and led me to kind of think deeper on that. But uh, th- those same questions, uh, very similar questions, are posed by so many evangelicals who just kind of see that as an impetus to kind of began to have this deconversion. So I, I want to bring up this, you know, some of these eloquent solutions that you and I found. 
But I do want to begin to spend at least a few minutes here on these uh, philosophical challenges that sometimes lead to a deconversion. And I'm thinking of a conversation that I heard recently with um, a guy called John Steingard, who's from the Christian band Hawk Nelson. He's been on YouTube and on Twitter lately talking about his deconversion. And they weren't exactly my jam. Um, you know, I didn't listen to them very much, but he's a pretty popular guy, I think. And he's out there as a Christian artist. And his deconversion and, you know, other pretty prominent Christian artists have also made these kind of very public deconversions. Uh, but one thing that he said really stood out to me, and this was in particular, we talked about the visiting an impoverished community and he couldn't understand why a God would allow this suffering to take place that he witnessed in this community and b why God would remain so hidden and absent from all of it. You know, these are huge philosophical and theological questions, of course. And I wonder maybe it's as simple as, as Steingard wasn't part of a faith tradition that had the resources to answer these tough questions. I know for me and some of the evangelical communities that I was a part of, these kind of tough questions would pose a major challenge to my faith, and maybe it couldn't be easily answered by people that were around me. But I wonder what you would say when you hear somebody walking away from the faith based on philosophical or theological challenges like these, like suffering or the hiddenness of God. What would you say just, you know, kind of as maybe a, a something to pose a question to kind of get them to consider something different? Because there are, of course, answers to these challenges, but they can't always be found, I think, very easily in some of these evangelical communities, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think the actual conversation that I would have with somebody would, would be very uh, personal, because this is a very hard emotional type issue. Um, and I, and I'd want to get down to like, is your doubt really being caused by your emotions or is it, is this like actually an intellectual problem? Um, because those have to be answered differently. Um, you know, th there might be a reason that God allows a child to die of cancer, but the parent doesn't really want to hear it, <laughs> you know, like that, that's not the time to go into a theodicy. Um, so, you know, I, I don't really think I have a blanket answer, but I guess where I would point is to say, well, you know, first of all, let's, let's build, if it's an intellectual problem, like a truly intellectual problem, or, or if we're at an intellectual place where we can talk about it like that, first of all, I think that Christianity really needs to kind of be built from the ground up. You know, do you believe in absolute truth? Do you, you know, what, what are the arguments for God's existence? What are the arguments for miracles? Like where in there does suffering you know, stop the argument um, because that could be a, a bad view of God. It could be a misunderstanding of evil. There, there's a lot of ways that, that that could manifest, but if it's just sort of a feeling of, well, it just, it just seems horrible. Okay. Well, if you're interested, I mean, th there are people that have come up with, I think pretty good reasons why God allows horrible things to happen. And, and I think uh, primarily of Eleanor Stump, uh, professor, of uh, philosophy out at St. Louis, um, you know, she came up with an incredible response to this. Um, and th this is, you know, partially her life's work. Um, and she's, you know, she's quite brilliant in, in a number of ways, but she goes through Plantiga and, you know, um, Swinburne and some of, some of these other like really big players in the problem of evil and says, yeah, you know, this works out pretty well here, but it leaves this problem and it leaves this problem. There's always kind of this remainder that isn't quite dealt with. And she gives a very sweeping response that I think is amazing because it actually goes beyond the philosophical and actually includes Christianity in, in the sense that philosophy can get us this far, but it's not really going to get us much farther. Like eventually you actually really need Christianity for evil to make sense. And just in a nutshell, what she says 
is that, you know, because the world we are in is really supposed to be preparing us for another world that if, if there's too much goodness in the world, there's a sense in which people could just become complacent and comfortable. Um, and they would never make it. They literally would not make it to heaven um, because in our sinful state, you know, we're just selfish and we'd much rather take the easy road. And I'm, I mean, I'm badly hatch, you know, hatchet jobbing her eloquent paper on this. But at the end of the day, essentially what she says is look it, you know, in a hundred year lifespan, if somebody suffered 100% of the time for that entire hundred years and they got an infinite amount of pleasure out of it, that is a good trans transaction. You know, it would be like if I gave you a shot that hurt really bad for one second, but it made you, you know, completely impervious to pain and suffering for a hundred years. I mean, you would do it. Well, a hundred year lifespan of suffering, if that's what it takes to get your soul to where it will embrace God and, reject this world and, you know, latch on to the world to come, that, that's an even better deal. Um, and again, this, this is kind of a, you know, junior high version of her argument, but, um, you know, I, I don't think that philosophically any other religion really kind of has those resources to, to say that, look, there, there's an, you know, there's an infinite gain to be had by a certain amount of suffering. Um, and then, you know, you can combine it with some of the other views, you know, it builds virtue, suffering builds virtue that you wouldn't have, you know, so for example, if there's no danger, you can't build courage, these sorts of things. So, I mean, at the end of the day, there's a lot of reasons that God could allow evil. We may not be, you know, he hasn't told us exactly why, so it's all speculation, but if the argument for Christianity is solid, and if there are, you know, pretty believable answers, if Christianity is true, I think that those two things together are, are a pretty powerful response. I think, too, one of the things you mentioned right off the top there is our view of God and how we understand God to be. And this, this for me, is a recording theme, thinking of how I understood God as an evangelical and how evangelicals I encounter now as a Catholic, how they understand God. And, I mean, we're talking about all kinds of different views of God. Not to say that as Catholics, we don't have different views of God based on the theology we read and our certain perspective on philosophy. Of course, there are different views of God within Catholicism, but there is a, a view of God that the, the church presents for us that we, that we you know, may not understand as well as we should, but there is a view of God that is put forward for us. But as evangelicals, I can certainly speak this way. I, I'm sure it's the same for you, and I'm sure it's the same for lots of evangelicals we can talk to on the street or in our social circles. All, there are all different views of God, some completely anemic, some totally inept, and some a bit more fulsome. But who's to say that somebody who, who is a prominent evangelical that has a deconversion, or, or, or even a regular evangelical that has a deconversion and becomes an agnostic or atheist, who's to say that they had a view of God that was actually who God is, right? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I, I'm also not a big fan of that genre of music. I'm, you know, I'm pretty much all about the metal. Um, you know, I, I listened to a couple of uh, Hawk Nelson songs just to kind of find out who this guy was. And uh, I picked on some of the more popular ones. But I, I remember, you know, immediately I just went, okay, you know, three chord. This is your typical Christian worship band, anthem band, you know. Um, and one of the one of the lyrics that came out of one of the songs I was listening to in the background while I was trying to figure out who this guy was, um, was, you know, he's jumping up and down and God is with you, not against you. And of course, all these like soccer moms and 14 year old girls are jumping up and down screaming. 
This is a true metalhead we're talking to here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it, it, that's just not my scene at all. But what's funny is that, like, at the, while while this guy is up there, you know, doing his cheerleader songs for Jesus, I'm watching his video, and he's going, "Man, you know, when I was in Africa, I just saw all the suffering." And I'm like, "Yeah, why didn't you write about that?" <laughs> you know, and 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 he said it himself. I, my job was to write Christian anthems. You know, his job for 15 years was to travel the country and get people juiced for Jesus, you know, and it's like, well, yeah, I, I don't know how you could put a faith like that. I mean, like, if that's what you think worship is, and a lot of evangelicals do, if if that's what you think being a Christian is about, then yeah, I, I don't think you could put that together with the real world, you know, but you know who can? Mother Teresa, you know, <laughs> you know, who can like read our saints, Um you know, we, we have incredible people of faith in our tradition that suffered themselves or, or that helped others that suffered or died for others. Um, and of course, when you actually bother to read the Bible, you know, what does every single New Testament author talk about? You're going to suffer. You know, the, the world is suffering. It just is. It sucks. You know, what, what is our prayer? You know, this, this uh, uh, veil of tears, you know, um, so yeah, it's like I could see somebody growing up with the, the kind of standard Catholic tradition is is not going to be okay with suffering, but it's not going to be shocking. You know, it's not going to be one of those aberrations that causes them to question their faith because the faith taught them this is how the world is. Um, but you know, you get somebody who doesn't go to church, but instead goes around putting on concerts to get you know youth groups fired up. Yeah, th- that kind of worship, if you even want to call it that, and faith is is not going to square really well when you encounter real, actual suffering. Like, yeah, I, I don't know how you put that together either. Yeah, so I mean, that's certainly an interesting perspective on 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 why some of these philosophical or theological challenges can cause a deconversion. Right? If you if you're not in a tradition or have an understanding of God that is robust enough to kind of accommodate these things. I mean, I'm thinking of even traditions that, that, that I was a part of where you'd have been told, well, you have to pray harder if this isn't happening for you. If you're encountering this suffering, it's because you aren't praying hard enough. And certainly that comes from scripture. There's scripture that talks about praying hard, but it's such a, it's such a strange way of in, in understanding the Bible to say you have to pray harder to have suffering go away there again is the problem. I mean, that's a philosophical problem of suffering, but also this problem of interpretation, which leads into a, a bigger problem, right? It's just that if it's just me and my community and my Bible taken out of the context of the philosophy and the theology that is that kind of underpins the tradition of the church for thousands of years, you have a very distorted view of who God is and how to accommodate some of these, these challenges when they come. And yeah, you see the suffering uh, community and you think, well, where is God in here? Because you haven't been given a God that, that can meet those things, right? Yeah, you're, and, and John uh, Steingard also, you know, he mentioned growing up charismatic, very experiential. Um, you know, I, I don't know that he was really prepared for any of those challenges because when, you, when you're in that bubble and everything's working out and everybody around you is happy and, you know, um, you know, probably wealthy, you know, he went to Willow Creek, you know, so there was that too. Um you know, you're, you're, you're just around a good life. You know, it's, it's very easy to be any religion when you have a great life and it doesn't ask much of you, you know, except to go to church and sing fun songs once a week. Um, yeah. How is that going to prepare you for the real world? I mean, there's, I, 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 I kind of compare it to like, 
you know, some of the descriptions of God that you get from, you know, some of these guys like Richard Dawkins and people like that, where, you know, when you look at what they think God is, you go, well, yeah, I don't, I don't believe in that God either. You know, I, I mean, we're, we're on the same page there. You know, the reason I'm not an atheist is because I have an accurate view of God that I believe in and you don't. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't believe in the false God that you don't believe in, but I, I do believe in the true God that's that you don't seem to be aware of. <laughs> All right. So you've done a video uh, and a series of articles on these famous YouTubers, Rhett and Lincoln, because these guys recently came out with their deconversion videos and they have something like 5 million subscribers on YouTube. So a fairly large audience. And you've done a great job covering that and responding to some of what they bring up. Uh, so I wonder if you can, as an example, kind of walk us through the history of these guys and their deconversion. And then I want to afterwards talk about uh, the response that you would give to them. And then I want to broaden that uh, a little later to the Catholic response to some of these larger deconversion experiences. But let's begin with who are these Rhett and Link guys and what does, what was their deconversion all about? <laughs> and, I, and I don't pretend to be any kind of expert on this. I, I've, I've learned 98.9% of what I know about Rhett and Link, you know, in the last couple of weeks, just since this deconversion came out. Um, my first exposure to them was in this hilarious uh, commercial local commercial they did for I think it's called the Red Barn, um, where it's just this over the top non racist commercial and it's just hilarious. Um, and you know we're, we're you know they're kind of in the same age group that I am in. Um, I lived in North Carolina for 15 years. That's where they you know so I mean like we were we were pretty close. They they did Campus Crusade. I was with Campus Crusade. So I kind of get their upbringing. I, I get a lot of where they came from, and essentially they got popular because they started doing these little comedy sketch routines for retreats and, you know, things like that. Um, they kind of became the, the de facto entertainers of their campus crusade group, which was huge on the campus they were at. And just, you know, step by step, they broke into the internet world. They got on YouTube right at the right time. And they've just kind of ridden this wave, you know, um, of, of just comedic, you know, goofball antics, uh, into, you know, pretty successful careers. Now, I wouldn't say that they were ever like Christian YouTubers or Christian comedians. They, they didn't really put themselves out there like that. It was more just that they were really funny, family-friendly guys who happened to be Christians. And so they were kind of a safe place to let your kids, you know, go watch the videos and things. So by the time they moved to LA and got like mega popular, um, their faith had started to fall away and they didn't really talk about it because they didn't really talk about their faith at all. I mean, like I said, they, they, they weren't really what I would consider a Christian entertainer, you know, like a Tim Hawkins or something where it's just out there and obvious, um, all the time. And so, um, yeah, I, I don't really know why exactly, but eventually they reached a point where they decided it was time to reveal to their audiences what their background was as as college missionaries and and the fact that they were no longer Christians. Um, and so those are the those sparked the two famous deconversion videos, and then there was a bunch of follow up videos, and there was like a prequel, and you know, um, it was kind of this this whole like you know uh, playlist of Rhett and Link deconversion stuff, but um, Link his conversion story was a lot more personal experiential. Rhett kind of handled more of the heavy lifting on the intellectual side. So I mostly just responded to his arguments and then just some of the statements that Rhett kind of let out that, that were very indicative of, of maybe more what was behind a lot of that move. 
So what was his trajectory? Was it an issue of, uh, and there's so many of these kind of deconversions, an issue of scripture not making sense or not being interpreted in the way that, you know, he he thought should be interpreted? Was it a literal interpretation type thing? Uh, So often, this is one of the roots. This was a root for me, uh, looking around at the the, the landscape of evangelical Christianity. And uh, this is something that, that Jonathan Steingard mentioned too, and I in a discussion that I heard him 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 bring up. You look around at the landscape of Christianity, and you see so many different interpretations of the same passage of scripture. You go, well, which one is right? Was that kind of the direction that that Rhett was taking, or was there a different kind of catalyst for his deconversion? I mean, from what I've heard, that was there. I mean, it was noticed, but for him, I think he was a lot more married to his view, uh, such that he just kind of tended to just kind of blow off anything. Um, and l- let's just start with an example because it'll, it'll make more sense than talking in the abstract. But in Rhett's story, he gives a lot of time to the issue of young earth creationism and evolution. So for anyone that doesn't know, young earth creationism is the idea that, that the six days of creation in Genesis are literal 24-hour days. And that not only that, but that those six literal 24-hour days occurred just several thousand years ago. In other words, the entire universe, including the planet Earth, is, is maybe you know six to 10,000 years old. Um, now, that, of course, automatically would exclude evolution because there's just not enough time for evolution to happen. Um, you know, I mean, looking at the time scales, almost no evolution has happened in 6,000 years, at least not to humans. Um, so on top of being against evolution because so much of evolution is very secular and excludes God, there's also the time frame element, which, you know, if the Bible's literal and it's true, then there just isn't that time. So it's very clear that Rhett was raised and entered adulthood with that view. Well, he started reading, um, ironically enough, Christian authors (laughs) that did not hold to the young earth view people like Hugh Ross, for example. Um, He started reading Christians that uh, affirmed evolution. I mean, they they believe that God directed it, had a place in it, but that the standard scientific account of evolution was basically accurate. There was just kind of a a cause, a supernatural cause behind it. Well, this, this basically just threw him completely for a loop. And again, it's interesting that he's reading Christians at this point. You know, he's reading Christians and yet he's getting ready to discard Christianity. So I don't think that it was that he said, oh, there's more than one view. This doesn't make any sense. I'm going to bail. It was more like he looked at the people who were trying to accommodate evolution and trying to accommodate the old earth as basically people that were kind of giving up the faith. Like, the only reason you're saying that is because science is going to beat you if you don't. Um, so I, I, it sounded to me at least, I mean, I don't know him, but it seemed pretty clear to me that he just didn't really take any of these other views seriously. It's just like, the only reason you're saying this is because science proved the Bible's false. And, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to go over here just to to save the Bible from science. Um, And then everything, you know, the, the rest of his talk is very rapid. He gives almost no arguments or examples whatsoever. He just starts kind of listing the problems. Oh, and then there's, you know, all these God killing all these women, women and children. And then there's, uh, you know, you get to the New Testament and, you know, there's all these conflicting stories and Bart Ehrman, you know, shows that the, the Gospels don't match and ah, the resurrection just, ah, that's, that's hard. That, that's basically his argument. That's a hard thing. That's as far as he gets. Um, 
And then, you know, so the next thing you know, the whole thing just unravels, completely falls apart, and he's where he is. <laughs> so, there's, I mean, there's a lot in there. It's a really interesting uh, way of approaching it. And, of course, I've spoken to people who have had very similar perspectives as well, who've come at this idea of, okay, so the scripture must be literal. This was the worldview that I was raised in. So you encounter something that suddenly doesn't seem like it can be interpreted literally, like the creation story. Uh, you look at the science that's mounting up against that. And uh, yeah, you you have to reconcile that somehow. And of course, one way of reconciling that would be to just kind of say, well, this isn't this isn't possible to reconcile and to kind of leave the faith. I, I wonder then, I want to respond to some of these that challenge on a grander scale. But I want to start small. And first, I want to ask you, how did you, how would you respond to the claims that Rhett made in that video? What would you say in response to those claims that, well, the, the, the science doesn't line up with the, with the Bible, so therefore this can't be right? Yeah, I mean, if, if, if he and I had been sitting around talking, you know, one of the things I would point out is that, you know, for the, for the Catholic faith, uh, the age of the earth and and the uh, mechanisms of evolution are really left kind of in the hands of scientists. Like that's just, that's just not really our job. Um, you know, the church allows belief in both because the Bible can be interpreted both ways, but you ask the average Catholic what they think they're going to pretty much go with science. Um, now science can change, you know, I mean, two generations ago, every scientist in the world thought the universe had always existed. And then guess what? A Catholic priest came up with the big bang and, and now everybody believes that. So, <laughs> you know, depending on how old you are, you know, you could have been considered an idiot until you were 20 and then a genius, you know, and you didn't change your mind, you know? Um, so who knows? Um, so the church just, you know, I think wisely doesn't really take a big stance on it. And I would just point out, like, do, do you realize that if you look at all the Protestants in the world, all the Catholics in the world, all the Orth- all the Christians in the world, that it's a like a sliver of the church that thinks that God created the world in six thousand six thousand years ago and in six twenty four hour days. Like that's that's extremely unusual, really, among Christians. And just to try to get him to see that it's not just that science disproved the Bible and so now everybody's changing their mind. I mean, I mean, you've got Saint Augustine you know, writing in the, in the, you know, fourth century saying that there's different views of Genesis, you know, in a book called the literal view of Genesis. <laughs> um, so, you know, th- this is not, a, this is not cultural accommodation. This isn't like us, you know, bending the knee to science. Just no, I mean, it's not clear 100% from scripture, what we're talking about here. And so it's really kind of up to science to figure it out. I mean, in the same way that, you know, in one place, the earth is uh, called a sphere. And then in another place, it says that it has four corners. Okay, well, obviously, one of those is a metaphor, and one of them is not. But it took us sailing around the world, flying to the moon, looking back, you know, to to figure out which one it was. That's not bending the knee to science. That's just letting science inform us of our interpretation. So that would be my number one thing, is just to say that this thing that's giving you so much trouble really should at most only proves that the little piece of the pie that you consider Orthodox Christianity is wrong. But there's no reason to leave Christianity when the majority of Christians actually agree with what you're reading. I mean, that, that just, that just doesn't follow at all. Um, but again, he, he didn't really seem like he was okay with that step that I, I think he was so firmly in that camp that it was that or nothing. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we had this similar discussion when we talked about baptism a while back when you came on the show, because that for me was uh, was kind of precipitated by a conversation that I had had or had been a part of with a Protestant who was writing and speaking against infant baptism and as if this was the th- was totally condemnable and and unbiblical and never and invented by the Catholic Church, kind of wholesale. And when we chatted back then on this podcast, in what's been a very popular episode, I'm pleased to say, I had lots of great feedback on that episode, one of the things that you said was to point out, again, like you have just now, how small a segment of the Christian population was is against infant baptism, right? Historically, in the history of the Christian Church, and even geographically in the... In, in the church as it is today. And again, here's again another example of that that you brought up. I think I think you do this so well, Doug. You you straddle this the Protestant and Catholic uh, worldviews to bring us this this great insight. Every time I have you on the show, this this seems to happen. Uh, maybe it's just a, a coincidence. I, I don't think so. But again, here we are with this idea of these things like young earth creationism or science and religion, these conflicts that okay, if that's a conflict for your worldview, if that's causing you to leave Christianity, hold on a second and realize that, that people that hold that view are a very slim minority of, of Christians in a larger spectrum. I think that's so important to underscore because you're leaving Christianity because of this, as if it's this problem that can't be, can't be overcome. Yet, look around and see that all these other Christians don't have that problem because they don't believe that thing that you do. I think it's just so important to underscore, right? Yeah. And that's really, you know, when I first heard about this, it it was actually because some, some academic friends of mine had put together their own response video. And I remember when I first saw it pop up, I just thought, why are they wasting their time? Like, why are, why are these scholars, you know, wasting their time responding to, you know, guys that, that cover themselves in chocolate and lick it off each other or whatever, you know, I mean, it's like, who cares? Um, but when I started looking at the stats, I was like, Oh, that's why. Um, because like you say, when you, when you've got 5 million viewers and, you know, let's say, first of all, the majority of those were probably not Christian. Cause again, this was not really a Christian ministry thing. They were just Christians doing their thing. Um, and then if you look at the majority of Christians who also don't do apologetics, you know, the vast majority of these millions of people have no idea what Rhett's talking about. And so when he starts throwing names out there like Lee Strobel and Josh McDowell, and I read this guy and I read that guy, I mean, he, he sounds like a professor, you know. Um, and of course, this is coming from from a guy who, you know, covers himself in Velcro and, you know, gets launched in the air or whatever, you know, I mean, like they're just goofballs, you know, and they're hilarious. Um but to suddenly have him get all serious and start quoting books and he's got a pile of notes in front of him. I mean, that was such an impressive presentation to someone that doesn't actually know what's going on. I mean, my, my thing is like, I know these guys, you know, I know Bart Ehrman, I know Mike Lacona, I know Josh Medell. Like I, I see right through it because he's picking the wrong people to, to read. Um, he's picking very unusual you know, objectively, whether they're right or wrong, objectively unusual Christian views and making them sound like that's just Christianity. And I'm going, man, 5 million people are going to watch this thing. And and how many people are going to suddenly feel justified in their unbelief 
because this guy that went through years and years of work puts himself out there as this super serious Christian, and now he's not a believer anymore. And it just drove me nuts because I'm sitting here going, like, this is just apologetically speaking, this is so weak. I mean, like, you you haven't even done square one yet, bro. You know, like, you are so <laughs> not even ready to deconvert. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I, I can give you better arguments than that against my view. You know, like, you you haven't even approached, you know, that level yet. Um, so that that's why, I like, I did a response video and I kind of walked through it. But, you know, I would just say, you know, with, with Rhett and Link, what it really boiled down to was, first of all, they had some moral issues with Christianity. So there was that going on and it just kind of seemed like they were ready to go. You know, um, as soon as there were some holes punched, it was like the floodgates open and, and they kind of went through those stages very quickly. Um, but again, what I found interesting about Rhett's presentation, of course, you know, this is still just like a 90 minute YouTube video, but he does mention how thorough he's going through things. He spends a lot of time on details. It, it would not have been hard for him to give better arguments for the important things. And so what I saw was just this total lopsided argument where he's got all this great evidence against something that really doesn't matter to like most Christians (laughs) and doesn't really affect the Christian faith. But then when it gets to the really important things, like whether the gospels contradict each other or whether Jesus rose from the dead, he he got, he's got nothing. I mean, he literally doesn't give a single argument. Um, and that was just, in a sense, kind of disappointing. You know, it was like, I, I wanted to fast forward through the Old Testament stuff, because, like, who cares, um, especially from his, you know, fundamentalist background. And then you finally get to the stuff that could really, like, legitimately kick someone out of Christianity. I mean, like, St. Paul even says, you know, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, you know, we are, of all men, you know, most to be pitied. Like, yeah, if if you disprove the resurrection, the whole thing is over. I don't care who wrote Isaiah or, you know, whether Moses taught evolution, it's it's over. And he got there and just completely dropped the ball. Didn't have a thing to say about it. So, I don't know. If you want more details, you can go on my website or whatever. But that, that was kind of the long and the short of it for the whole Rent and Link phenomena. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I mentioned off the, uh, earlier on in the program that a lot of these deconversions are for a number of reasons in combination. Philosophical, theological, experiential, issues with scripture. Uh, and it's it's interesting. I remember I, I had Jimmy Aiken, I think, on the program a while back now, uh, after you, you were very early on. When I first had you on the show, he was a little bit later. <laughs> well, once Jimmy heard that I came on the yeah. show, you know, he probably yeah. decided it'd be all right. Yeah, he was <laughs> off the hook, yeah. He, he talked about how oftentimes the objections that people have to Christianity, you know, they can be philosophical or theological or scripture-based, but so many times it comes down to, I don't want to be told who I can... Uh, marry or have relations with or what I can do and where I can do it. And when you pin someone down on some of the things that they have issues with, in particular Catholicism, because we have a lot of rules, quote unquote, about these kinds of things, at the end of the day, you have all kinds of reasons, but so many times it boils down to some of these moral issues, or you just don't like this thing that you're being told to do, regardless of everything else that you have an issue with. It's so often it boils down to, to this, this small thing at the end of the day, right? Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and just to be clear, I'm not saying, you know, that anybody, you know, well, Red Link supported the gays. And so that's why they're not Christian. I mean, I, I, I take them at their word. Um, now they brought it up several times throughout their videos. So I, I mean, I know that that was a part because they say it was, um, 
and then you know you also say that with joshua harris so like okay so here's another you know rock star christian that you know wrote a book when he was 20 and that's like pretty much all i remember about you know that um but you know he comes out um he wrote a book called i I kiss dating goodbye even though from what i read he'd never even dated um (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know so he gets married and blames uh rampant divorce on dating and this kind of thing writes this fairly controversial book becomes a big mega pastor or whatever um and so you know he ends up divorcing his wife um, and it was a mutual divorce, which is kind of weird in the evangelical world. Usually like one of them cheats and, you know, and then they use Matthew, you know, to get out of it. Um, <laughs> but in his case, that wasn't the, the case. I mean, they just kind of decided not to be married anymore. And that's like a total no go. Like even, even in most evangelical, you know, more liberal type situations, you, you don't just divorce. You know, like there's gotta be a solid grave reason for it. And only then is it okay. Um, but what's interesting is that when he comes out and says, okay, I'm, I'm pulling my book off the shelf and I'm just sorry for everybody that I've hurt because of, of my view that was wrong. He does this whole big sorry to the, to the LGBTQ community about, you know, not supporting marriage equality and contributing to bigotry. You know, and again, Rhett and Link talk about the same thing that they, oh, we got out to LA and we're meeting all these amazing people. And, you know, how, how, how can we say that, you know, their love isn't genuine and this kind of thing. And I think that just sometimes, yeah, like if, if you've got a very strong experience that something is true and you've got a religion that says it's false, that that's hard to put together. Um, and again, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that, you know, the instant somebody is okay with homosexuality, they're just going to completely fall apart. But um, you, that it does become one of those aberrations, you know, like I'm, I'm really having a hard time, with my feelings for these people versus what I'm supposed to think about them because of my faith. Um, that, that's hard to live with. Yeah. It's one of those things. I mean, this was for me, one of those things that uh, was led me to look at Catholicism because in, in my non-denominational church that I was a part of uh, during part of my conversion experience, as my paradigm began to shift and these kind of aberrations began to, you know, kind of bubble up the surface of my worldview as an evangelical Christian, I was in this church that didn't really have this thing thought through. We didn't have a belief statement on what we believed marriage to be or these kinds of things. And so it was a matter of looking at different theologians and different interpretations of kind of these scriptures. And for me, I was like, you know what? We're all looking at the same scriptures. We're all just relying on different theologians to interpret these for us, or even just the experience of different people in, uh, in these communities interpreting these things for us. And I realized at that point that, well, there's, you know, nobody has this market cornered. We're all just looking at the same verses and pitting our verses against other verses. And, you know, I can see like what you're saying. I can, I, I can empathize with these people who, who have this worldview that says, okay, so scripture is our guide. This thing doesn't seem super clear from scripture, depending on how you read it. I mean, now as Catholics, we would say that it is pretty clear. The church has taught this consistently, but I can see how if you're looking at different theologians, interpretations of scripture, I can see that that could be a challenge. And you throw your hands in the air and say, well, I don't know. I guess it's okay because I can't figure out which of these theologians is right in this situation. This, I mean, kind of comes back to why some of these deconversions happen in the first place when there's all these different interpretations and well, who's going to be, how can I say that one of these is right and one of these is wrong in that sense, right? Yeah. And in that sense, I mean, I, I appreciate Rhett and Link, you know, not really in, in a sense giving up their Christian values, right? Um, 
that when they discovered that their values were wrong, instead of just adjusting and going to some liberal pro-gay church, um, which I'm sure there were plenty of in LA, um, you know, they didn't do that. They said, no, you know, that's not what Christianity is. That's not what it teaches. So I'm just not going to be a Christian. I think there's some virtue in that in a way that, you know, instead of just kind of taking the lame way out and just, you know, kind of slithering into some other form of Christianity that you've, you know, objected to your whole life just to account for something that you want to change, that's kind of good. Um, You contrast that with with something I heard John Steingard, the the Hawk Nelson guy, um, you know, he mentions, you know, it it was interesting. I go around, I play at all these different churches. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, but we're the ones that got it right. That was that was kind of a funny admission. So I, I think it can kind of go both ways. There, there's a sense in which you're aware that there's so many different views, but then you can also be like so sure that you are in the right one. That That's just a very confusing place to be. I want to respond now to some of these. I, we're kind of getting there anyway in, in kind of broader terms, these evangelical deconversions. And I think back to the story that I told at the beginning of this episode. This guy was in discussion with, and our stories our stories were so similar on, on most of the journey. And it, it came from a place of problems with sola scriptura, right? This idea that, you know, so many of us have different views. And, and, and like you said, like like, like John Sanger is kind of reflecting, like, well, you know, we're the right ones, right? You get to a point, I think, and so many of these deconversions happen because you get to a point of looking at all these different conclusions based on the same Bible, issues of morality, issues um, of of things that you could brush away as maybe small differences, like we listen to different kind of music or we worship a bit of a different way. But then you look at, there's there's larger things you disagree with too. There's things of salvation or how we're saved or what baptism means or what marriage and family mean. And I mean, when I was journeying with this in discussion with this person, we, we came to polar opposite conclusions about what to do with this problem, right? One solution is to kind of leave the faith and say, well, they can't all be right. And one, I think, is is maybe the solution that you and I found is this clear and cogent answer in the idea of a magisterium. You know, that the church that Jesus founded in the Bible still exists intact today and traces an authority to teach and interpret and pass on that faith. And this was what we found in the Catholic Church. But I feel like so many evangelicals who ask these questions, um, you know, I kept thinking there's another way to respond to this because they have this problem of interpretation of so many different versions of, of the same Bible verse. And what we found, what you and I found, I feel like oftentimes is that missing link in these discussions that often isn't even a live option, right? I listened to John Steingart talk about how, maybe a, a tweet that he wrote talking about all these biblical scholars he's read and how they all have different conclusions and, well, how, who can I trust? And I thought, you know, in that discussion, the Catholic Church isn't even a live option. It isn't even an option amongst these other biblical scholars. You know, we were just reading biblical scholars from this evangelical perspective, and they're all disagreeing. But there is this other response to these challenges, right? And so I wonder what you would say, Doug, looking at all these conversion stories, and they're not all the same, of course. They're, they have different kind of experiences and different kind of things that make them up. But so many times, it's this idea of, well, we can't all be right, so who is right? What is the Catholic response to that kind of uh, a, a problem that causes deconversion? What would you say? Yeah, I think there's two responses. Um, one of them is that, you know, you there's a sense in which it would be nice if the Catholic views were on the table, right? Um, and that's rare. Um, I don't know if you can see this, but like this, this entire top shelf of books up here, every single one of those is published by an evangelical publisher 
and it's it's anywhere from three to five different views on important topics <laughs> that they're all arguing about. I mean, it's literally, and I and I could get three more shelves that big from from just the same publishers. <laughs> Everything from justification, I mean, that's supposed to be like the thing that makes Protestants Protestants, it, five views on, on justification, five views on sanctification, views on baptism, I mean, women in ministry, you name it. It's, it there's a book out there with a, a bunch of Protestants arguing about what they think. Um, but some of them do have the Catholic view in there, like the book on justification's got, got a Catholic guy. Um, so on the one hand, you want to be put on the table, but on the other hand, you don't just want to be another view, right? So I think there's two things. Number one, sometimes the church's view is just so good that it really needs to be you know, propounded just, just to say, look, we, we've got an answer for you that's like really good. So again, back to the, the homosexual thing, you know, one of my other responses to Rhett and Link would, would be that you grew up with a fundamentalist very right, hardcore, you know, view of homosexuality. And when you're on that side of the spectrum, homosexuality per se is a sin. I mean, just same-sex attraction at all is part of the sin. I I remember back to Joshua Harris, him saying that, um, you know, something that didn't fit in with Christianity was um, gays not trying to actively overcome their inclinations. Like you're in like what we would call like mortal sin, you know, if you're not trying to overcome the inclinations, which seems kind of counterintuitive in a lot of ways. Like we don't really say that about a lot of sins. Um, But then on the far left of the spectrum, you've got Protestant denominations that ordain lesbians and perform gay marriages. Right. Um, Well, I think, you know, I think that the Catholic church just has such a powerful answer to this that, you know, it's not the inclination that is a sin, it's it's the action, you know, and, and that's just true of all sin. You know, it always requires intellect and will. Um, and so if, if you just are a certain way, and this is where I think they kind of get it right, uh, the, the liberals kind of get it right, is that ju- just being a certain way is not sinful. Um, you know, I am sexually attracted to women, you know, but my wife is the only one available to me. You know, and so that inclination isn't a sin, but it becomes one if I let it, if I, if I act on it and the homosexuals in the same position, they have an inclination that there is natural or whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, it's not sinful to be a certain way, but it's, it's sinful to do certain things. And, and the church like nails this down in the catechism, like very, you know, briefly and beautifully. Um, you just don't really have that in Protestantism. But I think you have to be able to take it to the next level because you can't just say, hey, of all the views along the spectrum of, you know, the Christian spectrum of views on homosexuality, I happen to like the Catholic one the best because then you're just like right back to being Protestant again, right? You're picking your faith based on what you already thought. Um, But if you combine that with the idea that this church is not just one of the options on the table, like it actually has a claim to speaking with an authority that the Protestant doesn't have because it's not simply presenting you with one of five or 10 or whatever uh, interpretations of the Bible. It's telling you, you know, what God's word is and what it means. Um, And, and together those are, those are, that's just not something that Protestants have access to. Yeah. I guess that's the idea. This reminds me of, of the famous argument for Jesus, right? He's not claiming to be just this great teacher. 
He's coming to be the Messiah, the Christ, God, you know, <laughs> part of the Godhead. And it's the same thing with the Catholic Church. We're not claiming to be a denomination amongst denominations. And so approached that way, I, I can see that falling flat as not really being a live option. But I think the Catholic Church has to be on the table in those discussions as what it says it is. Like, hey, you know what? We're over here saying that we're the guys who first talked about this thing and who put those scriptures together that you're trying to now use to unpack this. We've had this answer that that takes the scriptures and takes philosophy and theology and takes tradition and presents these answers this way. You know, come over here and consider us not as another option on the table, but as as what the church claims that it is, right? As the authority with that in mind, the authority that the church claims that it has, with that in mind, let's consider this option, right? That's a very different perspective, I think, than just a denomination amongst denominations. Right, because, you know, with with the existence of Protestantism, there, there's almost no combination of beliefs that you can't find somewhere. But I, I think to some extent, people start to realize you kind of eventually, maybe as you kind of break out of your bubble a little bit and you start to actually hear from other people and look around, you start to realize that you know this this is such a private thing like i'm i'm really just believing these things because i believe them um i remember one time uh, you've you've probably heard of verbum the uh, uh, bible software um well we had a, a representative of of the company that makes it logos come out and do this big talk and he was he was extolling the features of the software and oh you know you can have a hundred bible commentaries open to the same passage at the same time and he said, people always ask me, you know, how many commentaries should I read before I'm pretty sure I got, you know, the right view of a verse? And he said, oh, it's simple. You just keep on reading commentaries until you find the one that teaches what you think. <laughs> now, you know, he's Protestant, and I'm sitting here in a room full of evangelicals. We all laughed our heads off because to some degree, you kind of go, eh, yeah, yeah, that's actually what's happening. You know, like I can find scholars to support pretty much anything I think, Um and, and putting together that hodgepodge and just kind of acting like, well, that's just what the Bible teaches and that's why I believe it. Eventually, it gets pretty hard to, you know, really believe that narrative. Yeah, and I wonder then, here's where, I mean, the Catholic Church comes in with that claim to authority. So, let's unpack that for a second if we can, because this is just so different than the idea that, well, we have to read scripture and figure out what it means, maybe some kind of plain sense meaning. And as you said, you can find theologians and scholars that disagree and on all kinds of different passages of scripture, looking at the same scripture, come to different different conclusions. I mean, on, on, on major things too. So how would you explain to somebody who has experienced a, de- a deconversion because they can't figure out out of all these different options, which one is the right one? How would you explain the different way that you know you and I have found in how the Catholic Church approaches those kind of problems. Yeah, I, I owe a, a guy named uh, Brian Cross this, this response. So I just want to give a shout out uh, his uh, website called to Communion. There's this brilliant article on there that um, looks at this whole idea of of sola scriptura and really what the different Catholic and Protestant paradigms are. And this was super eye-opening for me early on in, in my <laughs> paradigm shift. But what he explained was that, you know, typically, you know, just, I mean, you know, kind of summarizing all this, but the, the Protestant way, at least, at least the way I was and the people I knew, was that you began with the Bible. So you're handed the Bible and told, go read this, okay, as if you're just going to get it, right? <laughs> um, and then 
you go out and you find a biblical church. Like that's the next thing you read your Bible. And then on Sundays, start, go find you a Bible church, a good Bible believing church and go to it. Well, the trouble is what, what accounts for a Bible believing church can't just be the fact that they affirm that the Bible is true because they all do that. You know, Jehovah's witnesses do that. Mormons do that. Everybody does that. Um, so what Bible believing ends up meaning is teaches what you think the Bible teaches. And th- that's a subtle distinction that, that I think is missed. Um, I certainly missed it for a long time w- with a lot of evangelicals is that, you know, the, the Bible doesn't just have this interpretation that's totally obvious. Um, when you believe the Bible, there is a sense in which you're really believing your interpretation of the Bible. And what, and that, and that, that may not seem like much of a difference, but it, it's a huge difference, right? Because that's why there's 17 churches on, on, on one street corner is because all these Bible-believing churches are teaching what they think the Bible teaches. So how do you tell which one's the right one? It's the one that agrees with you. And and again, nobody would put it in that crass of a way, but I think that it ends up being that. And, and I think it just does so necessarily. I, I don't know how else... How else can you judge a Bible-believing church other than that they teach what the Bible teaches, and, and that ends up being your interpretation? So it's it's this process that just kind of feeds itself. Um, so then compare that to the Catholic paradigm. Now, again, probably 98% of Catholics out there did not go through this, but <laughs> in theory, what the Catholic does is says, okay, where is the church that Jesus started? because I need to go there so I can learn what the Bible teaches. And since you can't start with the Bible to learn what the Bible teaches, because that just ends up in that circle again, then you have to have some other mechanism for finding Jesus' church. And you can find that historically, you know, you can say, where was the church when Jesus was here? Well, wherever Jesus was, right? (laughs) Yeah, where was the church when Jesus ascended? Well, it's wherever the apostles were. Okay, well, where was the church when the apostles all died? It was in their successors, Timothy's church, Titus's church. At no point are you saying, hey, St. Paul, tell me what you think Romans is about, and then I'll decide whether or not I'll go to your church. You know, it's always, who are you? What, what is your authority? How, how, how is, is what you are um, showing me that, that you're part of the church? And, you know, for me, as, as someone who came in, I, I had to ask myself, like, at what point did that not become the right way to do it? Um, of course, the, the Protestant narrative is that the church eventually fell apart, and Martin Luther and other reformers had to kind of bring it back to the purity. But then you run into all these historical problems of, you know, Luther's view of justification was unknown in the church. I mean, a Protestant scholar, <laughs> Alistair McGrath, proved that. Um, you know, and so it just doesn't fly historically. And, and, and I mean, an atheist can do this investigation. It, it doesn't take any Christian commitment to just look at history objectively and say, well, there's the church right there. I mean, did the church put the Bible together? I, I hope so. You know, if that wasn't the church, then who did it? <laughs> you know, did the church write the Nicene Creed? Well, I hope so, because if it wasn't the church, who did it? It's not that hard <laughs> to figure out where the church is. Um, and if that church is still here today, well, then you kind of have your answer. Um, so th- those are two, com- you know, really just completely different ways of going about figuring out um, where is Christianity? Where where is Christ's church? Yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. I, I wonder then how you would say. What do you what do you think about how we bring this onto the table? How do you present the Catholic Church as a, as a live option? That kind of a discussion because so often you have 
these these deconversion processes happening. And it's a matter of, well, I can't find a church that teaches what the Bible seems to mean to me. So it, or it conflicts with science and, you know, the churches I grew up with told me that science has to be this versus the Bible. It's so often this matter of somebody's kind of private interpretation of something or in their community hitting a roadblock and then realizing they, well, they can't go any further as a Christian. How do we show them this other way of the Catholic church? How do we make that a live option or bring that to the table? Do you have any, <laughs> any ideas how we, as, as, people who have found this other way, who, who easily could have gone, as you said, into atheism or something, you know, go whole hog, I can't believe this, so I'm going to go this way. What do we do to bring, to bring this other option to the table to people and show them that there is this other part of the discussion that's just, I think, flat out missing in so much of these deconversion stories? I think just, you have to kind of expose those underlying assumptions somehow. Um, and and just to steal from from Greg Kokel and some other you know great apologetics guys you know with, with their methodology you know the the question is always very powerful you know you've you've got to get people talking you steer the conversation with the questions you ask you ask the questions you already kind of know the answer to but this is you know having a paradigm shift is so personal that it has to come from inside it just has to you you can't argue someone into a paradigm shift they've got to convince themselves to some extent. And I think that questions are a faster way to kickstart that process than just delivering the answer. Um, when I, when I do my paradigm shift talk, um, I love to show my copy of Scott Hahn's Rome, sweet home. I'm sure you've read that. Um, you know, this is like one of the most famous conversion books of all time, right? So here's Scott Hahn, brilliant, Protestant scholar guy becomes Catholic and this book is his story. So the first time I read that, I was reading it because one of my buddies was becoming interested in Catholicism and I wanted to, you know, go show him how wrong that was. And I read Rome Sweet Home. And years and years and years later, I go through this whole paradigm shift. I'm becoming Catholic. I'm in RCIA. And they assign Rome Sweet Home to us to read. And I I remember thinking, you know, at when I read Rome Sweet Home, I really wasn't that impressed. I mean, it, it was okay, you know, but it, I just really wasn't very impressed by it. And I started thinking, gosh, you know, like I must have really not been disposed at all to Catholicism because obviously this is a good book. I must not have read it very well. I, may, maybe I just skimmed through it, you know, like, and so I got my old copy of Rome Sweet Home and I flip it open and there's underlining and highlighting and I had taken notes. I, I made my own index on the blank pages in the back. I mean, I ate this thing for lunch and I'm sitting here, you know, I'm reading his arguments and I'm going, yeah, th these are all of my arguments. You know, like this is all the same thing that I argue now. Um, how in the world did I read Rome sweet home and not like just have a total crisis of faith and become Catholic, you know, years and years ago. And I, I don't know, you know, like th they're just, those aberrations weren't bothering me as much as they should. Um, I, I hadn't been forced to alter my faith to accommodate them because they just didn't bother. You know, the, in other words, there's all these internal realities going on. Um, you know, for me, a lot of those internal pushes were just some of the destructive nature that I saw of some parts of evangelicalism that I was involved in. And so it gave me kind of that inner motivation. Those aberrations started looming large. You know, for Rhett and Link, it seems to be that they had some problems with Christian morality. Um, and, you know, so the problem of evolution 
which surely they had heard before, <laughs> um, started looming really large, you know, and uh, by the time they got down to the New Testament, it doesn't sound like they were even reading anybody else anymore because, you know, they're pitting like, you know, legitimate New Testament scholars like Bart Ehrman against like Josh McDowell, who I don't, I think he had like maybe a bachelor's degree when he wrote his books, you know, <laughs> um, you know, it, it's like you're not even trying. It's hard to even take you seriously when, when you bring up these guys and then you're bringing up Lee Strobel as the answer, you know, to some like legitimate scholar. It just seems ridiculous. But, you know, when you're when you're almost to that paradigm shift and you've already gone through all this and you've had that inner motivation and you've everything's just kind of fallen apart and all of a sudden everything starts to seem to fall into place. Everything I read makes more sense as a non-Christian than it does as a Christian. And I can see it. I can see it happening really fast. Um, and, but again, I think that's just part of the way we process things as human. And so you can't just, as much as you want to just dump all the right answers on somebody, um, I think if you're really concerned about creating a true conversion, you, you've got to somehow get them motivated to to start looking into it themselves. Yeah, that's a good point, right? Those questions, lead with those questions, because the questions to get your, to get somebody thinking about these things for themselves is so, is so important rather than just spewing the information out and, uh, and, and, and maybe ruining a friend or relationship in the process. Sure. Yeah. 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 You know, you, you know, if again, to go back to, you know, Rhett and Link, you know, it, it might've been an interesting question to say, um, you know, if, if, if evolution or, or, well, let, let's say like maybe the young earth thing, you know, if, if old earth is so off the table, then, then how come Augustine was talking about it in the fourth century? You know, we're, we're talking, you know, 1500 years before evolution was even an issue. You already had people questioning what God meant there. So d- doesn't that seem like maybe, you know, Christians have more options? So, you know, th- there's just, there's ways that you can ask those kind of questions that hopefully they'll kind of stay up late at night thinking about, <laughs> um, <laughs> rather than just slamming the door, um, I, I think that asking questions is a is a powerful tool to just get people's motivations going. Yeah, because it's a it's a worldview that is so foreign to evangelical Christianity. I know that I I would have no idea. I mean, my view of the Catholic Church before I began my own paradigm shift was this this stodgy old thing, you know, down the road that you know grandmas maybe went to, or, or like I you know, I didn't have the Catholics that I knew. Uh, at the time were the kids in high school who knew where to get the best drugs. You know, they weren't devout Catholics who who practiced the faith and who who I understood as the evangelical, evangelical Christian looked like what Christians are supposed to look like, right? So, I mean, there's so much work that has to be done sometimes to even present to the Catholic Church as as what it says it is. It's it's just not even on the table, I think. I'm thinking of John Steingard, who in a tweet talked about all these biblical scholars who who disagree on the, you know these certain issues and so, well we can't all be right, obviously, you know, no one is right. There is no right answer here. Just asking a question like, well have you considered like, you know, so and so this this what this church father might say about this topic, like how there is another way of of answering these questions. But not just to shove these questions down someone's throat, but to ask kind of, kind of questions that would, would lead them maybe towards this other idea that, that isn't even on the radar, right? Yeah, I think of, uh, just so we can drop, name drop a few more deconverts, uh, you know, Mar- <laughs> Marty Sampson, the, the Hillsong guy, right? Um, now, he, he I, I haven't seen anything of any substance whatsoever from him. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, him sitting in his car going, wow, man, you know, and just, okay, whatever. Um, 
but kind of the famous Instagram post that that he came out on. You know, he's he's keeps saying things like, you know, there's not very many miracles in the church, but nobody's talking about it, and you know, pastors are falling left and right, and nobody's talking about it, and you know, how how can a loving God send people to hell? Nobody's talking about it. And I'm sitting there going. Dude, like everybody talks about all of those things all the time. Like where, where have you been? You know, like maybe not down in Australia, you know, but like I, I have whole books, like lots of books on every single thing you're talking about. <laughs> um, you know, and, and it's just, it's so hard to take somebody like that seriously. But again, you know, if he was sitting across the table for me in a coffee shop, you know, one question I really like is, well, you know, okay. So, you know, what have you read on that? You know, let, let's, okay, you know, you're saying nobody is talking about it, really. Nobody is talking about contradictions in the Bible. It's like, okay, well, ha- have you read this 300-page book or this 400-page book or this 300-page book? You know, um, I, I literally have a library of books that talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um you know, but but again, just, just kind of leaving it on them, you know, like where it's not judgmental. Well, well who have you read on that? Uh you know, um, when it comes to the resurrection, Rhett, you know, who, who have you read besides Bart Ehrman? Well, Josh McDowell. Okay. Do, do you think that, you know, a guy that popularized apologetics in the 70s is like the best the church has, you know, against <laughs> against Bart Ehrman? You know, like, have you read Michael Lacona? Have you read Gary Habermas? Have you read N.T. Wright? You know, not to be triumphalistic here, but it's just, it's so frustrating to me that these guys have such a huge platform and they're just abusing it, you know? They didn't build this pat- platform by being good Christian apologists, and now they're turning the corner. You know, they built this platform by just entertaining people and being funny, and now they're basically telling all of those people that they're, you know, that there's really good reasons not to be a Christian. And they're doing a terrible job of it, but but they're doing a better job than probably eighty percent of the people watching them would even know how to deal with or, or how to even start. So you know, I, I think that you know. They kind of deserve a little bit of a slap. <laughs> <laughs> well, the platform is an interesting topic, and I, and I, you know, when somebody, a Christian worship leader or a Christian author or somebody or a, or a prominent pastor or somebody that loses their faith, I mean, that that platform that that person has is is substantial. And I mean, even even a Christian worship leader, like I, you know, I would have thought as evangelical that these people who are writing these songs have some kind of theological training and are kind of trustworthy to be writing these songs and singing these songs and are people of faith. But but really, like you say, I mean, Rhett and Link are maybe a different case because their platform was not built around this idea of apologetics. But we, we trust these prominent leaders. And how many people do those leaders kind of lead to then ask similar questions that they're asking and, and drift away out of the faith? Because those questions seem legitimate based on the platform they have, it seems like a person, this person has legitimacy to ask these questions. They must have kind of thought through these things. But when you begin to kind of push back, you see, well, there are all these things they haven't considered, people they haven't read, you know, and they're, they're, and they're in, in the end kind of leaving the faith without, without considering these these really powerful responses to those ideas, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think it just betrays, you know, kind of the the rock star mentality that we have that, you know, why does a guy from Hawk Nelson have a platform? I mean, why? <laughs> you know, he, he had a platform. You listen to his songs. You, you can see his his level of, of you know, knowledge or whatever. Um, 
you know, a guy writes one book when he's 20 and then, and then 25 years later, he's in the news, you know, cause he's getting a divorce. It's just, this is just, um, it just seems like it's kind of pandering to this rock star mentality that we have that, you know, these, these are the big guys that suddenly, because you make funny commercials, you know, 5 million people are going to watch you now. Now I will say in the case of Rhett and Link, um, you know, they can do whatever they want, right? I mean, their their whole persona is that they're very personable and they just get out there and talk to each other. So I can kind of give them a pass in the sense that, if, you know, they're not really violating their their platform by doing what they're doing. It's just kind of irritating who that platform actually is. But yeah, when some guy that just sings kind of vapid Christian rock songs for a living suddenly is acting like he's got really good reasons to not be Christian it's hard for me to take that seriously. You know, um, I love what, uh, John Cooper, the lead singer of skillet, uh, came out with a very famous tweet and then like got interviewed by a hundred million people where he basically says, look, don't listen to these people. Don't listen to me. Like I, I, I sing songs and play bass, you know, like I don't have any training. Um, you know, I, I've probably written heretical songs just on accident. Like that is not our job. You know, like you should not be listening to these people. And, I think that for whatever reason also, we, and I, and I saw this as an evangelical, we, we tend to give a lot of instant street cred to converts, right? That, oh, listen to so-and-so, she's an ex-astrologer and now she's a Christian. And instantly, she's not only an expert in astrology, but also an expert Christian. You know, it's like, well, hold up. You know, like I've been a Christian 20 years and I'm still figuring some stuff out. You know, she became Christian a year ago why is she getting invited to conferences and speaking all over the world? If it's to speak on astrology, that's fine. But like, you don't get to write a book on Christianity until you've you know been there a while. Um, and I should know because I wrote a book on Catholicism <laughs> ten minutes after I became a Catholic. So <laughs> we we tend to just kind of idolize people that have converted. Ooh, he used to, ooh ex Christian pastor, as if that just instantly gives you total authority in like both fields now. Um, and I don't know why that is. We, we just seem to be enamored with converts. And, and, I, and I put myself in there too. I mean, I, I love hearing X blanks, <laughs> um, you know, speak. I, I remember one time at this um, apologetics conference I came to, uh, all each of the speakers lined up on the stage and each one of them came forward and just introduced themselves really quick to kind of kick off the conference. And like every single person that walked up introduced themselves as an ex something, you know, we had the ex Wiccan and we had the ex Mormon and we had the ex. So it's going down the line. And then finally we have our Southern evangelical seminaries, um, uh, old Testament professor, Tom Howe. And I don't remember what he said, but he made some hilarious joke. Like, you know, I, I'm an ex pagan or something because he was like the only one on the stage that had just been a Christian his whole life. And like, well, sorry, but you know, <laughs> All I have to offer is 50 years of experience, you know, <laughs> being a Christian. Um, yeah, so I think between the two, we, we just we just give undue attention to these guys that, you know, no one's even heard of this guy for 30 years, but all of a sudden he's not a Christian anymore and the entire internet blows up. Um, you know, that 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 is just something that the, the rock star mentality and like the I iconic view we have of converts really needs to be investigated. Yeah. That's a really, really interesting point because right. This person must've been an expert on Christianity because now they're not a Christian anymore. Like you, you somehow give them that 
those kind of credentials that they never necessarily haven't earned, uh, but since they've left Christianity, well, they must have had good reasons. They must have really thought through these reasons. They must really know what they're talking about, have some kind of expertise, because they've left this thing now. But you, you dig down to the surface. I can think of so many debates I've watched. I like watching debates because it really brings out the, uh, the, the best arguments on both sides. And I've watched so many debates with these people who argue against uh, the existence of God or different issues like that. And there are these ex-Christian pastors who are arguing for these different things. And you realize in the course of the debate, you know, the reasons they have to argue against God's existence, or the reasons why they say the evil can't be overcome with, it, with, by, by, with God, like it's impossible, this problem of evil is just too big. You realize in a debate, you know, these people weren't experts. Like, this was a Christian pastor. They're an ex-Christian now, but they weren't... They weren't a, a, a pastor, they weren't like this expert on, on suffering. They encountered this problem, but suddenly, now that they're an ex-Christian, you know, like you're saying, we afford to them this like intelligence and this wisdom that they may not have actually possessed, but somehow, now that they're a convert, oh, they must have been an expert on this thing they've left now, right? That's that's true in so many different different areas, but that's a huge, a huge blind spot. Like th- these people aren't experts. They didn't necessarily leave the faith because they had the best reasons. They had their reasons. They weren't necessarily the best ones. And, and there could be answers. And there often are answers to why they, why they left. Right? Those reasons they had. Yeah, my my favorite one from the uh, just just so we can bash on everybody on the Catholic side <laughs> is you know these these folks that you know leave the church and they you know I went to Catholic school for 15 years and I, and you know now that I'm the director of education at a church and I see like you know I mean what passes for catechesis sometimes in certain parishes it's just like I'm surprised you made it that long you know <laughs> um, you know. It, you know, to a, to an evangelical who you know Sunday school may or may not even be a thing at your church, and it's certainly not required. You know, the idea that you spent 15 years in, you know, get, you know Catholic school or parish school of religion or whatever. I mean, it just sounds so amazing. It's not like you should have a degree, you know, um, until you actually get in those schools and 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 see you know what's usually actually being taught. And um, you know, it's just really not all that impressive. Um, in a lot of in a lot of cases, so you know you got to watch that too. There's a lot of ex-Catholics out there, especially in the evangelical world. They love talking about how they never heard the gospel, you know, until they came to this church. And I'm going, dude, you heard the gospel like every single Sunday. <laughs> I guarantee you did. <laughs> you know, you might not have heard the evangelical, you know, take on the gospel, but you absolutely heard the gospel. Um, and it, it really is kind of funny. Again, just this convert mentality that you know we can just 100 percent trust somebody that isn't what they used to be anymore um you know you, you got to go to the experts you got to be fair yeah <laughs> well said well doug i think this is a great place to probably end this conversation i think it was a great one i mean this is just one of those things that i don't like doing episodes of the podcast that are set in a certain time and, and not really replayable after that um, but this is a perennial thing. I think it's going to keep coming up. So I think this conversation will uh, will always be um, uh, useful and I think relevant. Uh, just replace the names of people who have experienced these kind of deconversions uh, as we go down the years. Whenever this is this is replayed, and I think it's necessary. We you know we we have to have this this 
response out there, I think, for people to understand there is this other alternative on the table than just these different interpretations of scripture or different ideas of understanding morality. There is this other way, this historic church that uh, we can just trace down through history to see, I think, has a pretty good argument on uh, on on a way of responding to a lot of these challenges. So I think this has been a really important conversation. Yeah. You know, these things aren't going to stop. And you know, the, the, the older I get, um, you know, the older I get, <laughs> the, the less surprised I am by so much of this, you know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been around long enough to see people that I grew up in the faith with, um, you know, deconvert and they're just total, you know, totally secular now. And, um, you know, I've seen, evangelicals become Catholic and Catholics become evangelical. I mean, it just, it happens, you know, a lot of people go through conversions, but you know, at, at the end of the day, there, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, the, the problem of evil is nothing new. The problem of harmonizing the gospels is nothing new. You know, the question of evolution uh, or, or at least the age of the earth, that kind of thing, as we've seen nothing new. Um, and there are various responses to all of these. And, and I think that really, I mean, just to kind of put a bow on this, at the end of the day, our, our faith does reside in the will. I mean, this is one thing I think that's super important that the church teaches is that faith is an act of the will, not of the intellect. Um, that you have you steer yourself. That there is this kind of scary sense in which our will can kind of direct our intellect to think about certain things and even to think about certain things in certain ways. And so there is there is a sense in which our desire for a certain worldview is going to affect us. And, and this is why we can be judged for our faith, right? And this is something that comes up with all these guys is, you know, how can God send people to hell just because they don't know a certain doctrine of it? Well, that's not what the church teaches for one thing. Okay, maybe some churches do, but not the Catholic church. Um, but but even for those who, who have a really strong view of like, you've got to be a Christian, um, you know, at the end of the day, the, the reason it's still judgeable is that people's wills still are engaged. You know, there, you know, the scripture says in Romans that there is enough evidence out there for people to be convinced if they want to. Um, God can reach anybody. You know, like if, if there's some guy out in a jungle somewhere that responds to God's revelation and there's no missionary to talk to him, I mean, we know from scripture that God miraculously transports people from one place to another. He sends angels to preach the gospel. Like all of these answers are already in scripture. God doesn't have any trouble at all reaching these people. So this idea that God is just this horrible guy out there and all, all the non, you know, 7 billion people are all going to hell. Like, I don't know what theology, you know, you believe in, but that is not what the church teaches. That's not what even like reason teaches. And it's certainly not what the scripture implies. So, um, you know, we, we have to look at what 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 is behind my view? Like, what is behind this bad attitude? Um, is the hell thing really, really a problem? I mean, is there really no answer to this that actually makes moral sense and makes sense with Christian theology? Or am I just mad? You know, I'm just mad and I, I'm ready to jump ship. I'm ready to get out of here. Um you know, you hear this a lot with the Marty Sampson guy from Hillsong. He's just like, hey, you know what? I don't have any problem about this at all. I'm not bothered by anything anymore. I feel great. Um, well, yeah, I mean, I suppose just, you know, giving up on everything and, you know, just believing a absolutely anything you want to all the time probably feels wonderful, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, good luck with that. Um, 
on, on the one hand, we don't want to put so much in the will that we just kind of write people off like, oh, he just didn't want to be evangelical anymore. That's why he's Catholic. You know, that, that's not very legit. You know, uh, you know, Rhett and Link, they just like the gays. You know, they just they moved to L.A. and got rich. So that's why they're not believers now. That, that, that's that's not fair to them. But on the other hand, we, we also can't go like the super hyper apologetic side, which just says, well, if they just knew the arguments, they, they would be Christian again. That's not true. You know, God doesn't judge people on their intellectual content. He doesn't judge people on what they've heard or not. You know, he judges us for things that we can control with with our will. Like, what are you like? What do you want? Um, and I think that he gives people, as uh, um, uh, Pascal, I think, said, you know, God, God gives enough darkness for the people that want to stay blind, and he gives enough light for people who want to see. And, and at the end of the day, like, no one is going to have an excuse for their beliefs. But it can sure feel like that when you're ignoring the fact that you're actually engaging your will, even when you're using your intellect to look into these questions, the will still has a lot to do with it. <laughs> Very well said. Doug, where can people go to find out more about what you're doing? I know you have some, some, some books coming out. I don't know if you have any more details to share about those, but where can people go to follow you and figure out uh, you know, what you've written, what you're doing, your videos and that kind of thing? Where do you want to point them? Yeah, so if you just go to douglasbeaumont.com, um, that's that's kind of the hub for everything. You can get to my YouTube channel from there. You can get to my writings. If there's any books out or anything, it's, it's all going to be there. Um, so douglasbeaumont, like Texas, uh, .com. <laughs> Don't go to dougbeaumont.com. I think that's some realtor. I'm, I'm not that guy. Um, <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, as far as the book goes, you know, I, I mean, we'll, we'll, I'll have to get back on the show here pretty soon, but I'm, I'm right in the, I, I don't want to say middle and freak my editor out. I'm toward the very end uh, <laughs> of uh, finishing a book called um, With One Accord. It's coming out by uh, Catholic Answers. And the idea of that book is um, teaching Catholics how to explain Catholic theology to Protestants in a way that they can understand by using their own principles. And so it's kind of a way to like help Protestants understand Catholicism and help Catholics explain Catholicism, um, basically based on things that Protestants already accept um, so that they can, you know, we can build more bridges instead of just throwing theological conclusions back and forth. <laughs> that sounds great. It's supposed to be out at the end of July, but um, I'm, I'm guessing, I'm guessing end of summer probably. Um, but it's on the Catholic answers store. Like right now, I, I actually just saw it today for the very first time. I didn't even know what the cover looked like. Um, but if you go to the Catholic answers store, I think it's store.catholic.com or something, type in my name. It's, it's on there. Well, that sounds great. And I can't wait to read that and to have you back on the podcast. Thanks so much for being here, Doug. I want to say God bless you. God bless your fantastic ministry. And, uh, thank you so much for being here once again. You as well. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you once again for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Hopefully you got something out of that to chew on, to think more deeply about, and hey, maybe you even learned something new. I always love having Doug on the show. I always think a new thought when I speak to him. <laughs> He's a brilliant guy and puts things so well. 
Check out his website, douglasbeaumont.com, because his new book is coming out shortly from Catholic Answers Press. It's available actually on shop.catholic.com to pre-order now, and I will have him back on the show because that is a fantastic book. I've read a few of the kind of introductory things he's written, had a little sneak peek on some of those things, and it's fantastic stuff. I guarantee it'll be a great discussion when I have him back. TheCordialCatholic.com for my website. I'm at CordialCatholic on Twitter, TheCordialCatholic on Facebook, and please send your emails, your feedback to CordialCatholic at gmail.com. Patreon.com slash CordialCatholic to support this show, or PayPal.me slash CordialCatholic for a one-time donation. Thank you so much to my patrons who help keep this thing running. You guys are fantastic, and thank you. Please subscribe to or follow this show wherever you find it. Your ratings and reviews are incredibly valuable. Please, please, please leave a rating and review if you can, if you feel led to, if you feel like you'd like to. Those go a long way. Thanks so much, friends. I'll talk to you again next week, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.